0: Support for today's episode of Truth and Justice comes from ABC Network's new weekly drama series, Conviction. Each year in America, thousands of people are wrongfully convicted. That's why the Conviction Integrity Unit was assembled. On ABC's Conviction, you can follow the investigations of this elite team who have only five days to determine if the seemingly innocent should be set free. Inspired by real events and from the executive producer of Criminal Minds, Conviction stars Haley Atwell and it premiered on October 3rd and it airs on Monday nights at 10, 9 central on ABC. Welcome back to Truth and Justice. I'm your host, Bob Ruff, and I want to start today's show off by apologizing for last week's audio quality. I'm sure a lot of you noticed, a few people made comments on social media and emails, but there were some issues with the sound quality last week. And for a quick behind-the-scenes look of what was going on, we actually had to record last week's episode three different times because something was malfunctioning on our mixer, and we kept getting a bunch of clicks and pops and things were tailing off at the end. Once we got the episode done and published, we dug into the problem a little deeper and found out that our mixer had a short in it and was fried. So hopefully we won't have that problem anymore. We got a brand new mixer. We got everything set up. We should be good to go. But I wanted to apologize for the bad audio quality last week. Now, moving on to today's episode. In this week's episode, I'm going to be answering your questions and taking your comments. I know we usually only do these every couple of months, and we just did one a few weeks ago. But there's a couple of reasons why we're doing it this week. Number one, I need your input. With everything we have right now, we're waiting on these new records from Smith County. Everybody seems to have a lot to say about both Margie and about Angela. People have a lot of questions and comments and theories, so I thought it would be a good idea to address those here on the air this week. But besides that, there have been a couple of things that came up early in this week that have caused us to have to record two episodes in a very short period of time. Unfortunately, I can't get into exactly what's going on, but I have to be out of town on an assignment for the show next week. I promise at some point you all be filled in on what's going on. I can just tell you it's good news, but it's really thrown a kink into our schedule. And then after finding that out on Tuesday of this week, we got some more really big news. There's something huge coming and I'll let you all know what's going on at the end of today's episode. But for right now, let's get right into your calls. I've got Jennifer from New York on the line. How are you doing, Jennifer?
1: Good, Bob. How are you?
0: Really good. Uh, what do you have for us today?
2: I uh, just was wondering if you could tell me if you know if Angela is left handed and approximately how tall.
0: I do not know if she's left or right handed. As far as how tall she is, I'm not sure. She She's kind of a heavy set woman. Now, okay. but I don't really know what, what she looked like back then. But uh, we're going to be further investigating whether she's right or left-handed for sure.
2: Yeah, that would be interesting to know. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: No problem. Thanks for calling, Jennifer. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. I am on the line with Thomas from New Orleans. How are you doing today, Thomas? Pretty good. Yeah. How are you doing? Doing really well. So Mike tells me you have a question about my uh, encounter with Angela. Yes.
3: Um now if I have this correct, she said that um the night after Margie called that she looked outside, she saw someone was there, then she ran into her bedroom and locked the door right Now, did she describe the person that she saw?
0: She didn't to me to be honest, I think the whole thing sounds kind of fishy, but uh she'd actually uh-huh. said the whole thing happened. It w- it w- the way she described it, I took it as though it happened on the same night, which was the night before the murder. And she uh-huh. said that she got the call from Margie. She kind of jumped around. She said at one point she threatened her life. And at another point that Margie mm-hmm. told her that she was a stupid bitch because Leonard never stopped messing around with that other bitch. And then she told the mm-hmm. story about seeing the person down at the bottom of the hill and she locked herself in a room. And then the next morning found out her dogs were poisoned. But really the whole thing is just kind of baffling. Um, I, I filed mm-hmm. opened open records request to find out if there was an incident report because she said she did call the police, but she didn't say anything about any of this at trial. In fact, at trial, she said that the night before that Leonard's truck was scratched at work and he got home late that night, that Wednesday night. So, you know, she had the memory of that happening, but never brought up the fact that supposedly the defendant in the trial's mother had called her and threatened her and all this stuff had happened that night before. To me, she never described what the person looked like. And and to be honest, I've been out to that property. I just don't see that, you know, there's a barn there now, but that was built in 2010. Uh, at the time, mm-hmm. I, I talked to Margie and talked to Ed, who had both been out to that property. The backyard, it's like out in the country. It's just woods down a hill. There's no lights back there. You know, there's a light mm-hmm. now on the side of the barn, but I don't see... Number one, how she could see somebody down there, much less describe them. Just the whole thing just sounded fishy to me. But, you know, there were follow-up questions I was going to ask as we went along. I wasn't expecting her to just cut off the conversation the way that she did.
3: Because mm-hmm. yeah, I was wondering that uh, even if she could see someone from her apartment, does she even know what Margie looks like? Could she, could she pick her out of a lineup?
0: Yeah, I don't know. Because Margie, every time I brought Angela to Margie, she was always... Confused, and you know, are you talking about this girl? No. Are you talking about you know this woman? No. Not her. Doesn't know Angela because you got to remember Angela was quite a bit younger than all of them. Angela was only like twenty two years old at the time, where Leonard mm-hmm. was I think thirty seven, and Margie and Elnora were both in their forties at the time.
3: Yeah, I was just thinking that even if you know this supposed call from Margie happens, I mean, does that even mean? Does that necessarily mean there's a connection connection between that phone call and her dog getting poisoned? Yeah, I, I, just, I just don't
0: know. Yeah, the whole thing sounds sounds fishy to me. Unfortunately, I don't have any more answers about as far as what exactly went down. I'm hoping that I can find out, number one, if there was a police report and then what the police report says. Hopefully, we'll find that out soon. Right. All right. right. Well, Thomas, well, hey, thanks for calling. I appreciate the question, and hopefully we'll talk to you again next time. Okay, thank you. Keep up the good work. All right, right, will do. Thanks, Thomas. Okay, thank you very much. Bye. Okay, I have Solinda from California on the line. Please tell me I pronounced your name right, Solinda.
1: Oh my gosh, you got it perfect! Thank you so
0: much. <laughs> oh, that's that's on it's Mike. He he sounded it out for my... me. <laughs>
1: oh,
3: good.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty much a, a mangled name anytime. So, um, good morning, and thank you so much. At least this morning here in California. But I'm fascinated by this particular case, and the one point that eludes me is. Was the child of Angela and Leonard born at the time that this murder occurred, or do we know that, or have I missed it?
0: Well, no, it's it's actually a really good question because it's kind of baffling. Yes, the child was born. The child was born in 1992, so they did have a one-year-old at the time of the murder. The confusing part is where was the one-year-old when all of this was happening because Angela didn't say in her talking to me and telling me the story about Margie the night before and all that and you notice she says she locked herself in the bedroom doesn't say anything about a child and then when I interviewed Mm -hmm. Leonard Leonard says he doesn't remember the baby ever being there so I'm a little confused by it too and I kind of got you know cut off from both of them before I was able to ask some follow-ups about that but They did have a one-year-old child at that time, and I'm wondering if the child was staying a family member or something. I just don't know if the baby was at the house with them.
1: This is just blowing my mind from many different aspects because the the child could not have been there in my mind because when you have Angela talking about how she overslept, what one-year-old sleeps in? past seven. And why was she not concerned? And then I had to get the baby ready. And then I had to take him to daycare and I still had to get to work or anything like that. And those are the kind of things that I'm thinking in my mind, or even when she supposedly said that she had gone in the middle of the night over to look at Elnora's trailer. She didn't mention anything about gathering the baby up at 1130 at night and driving somewhere. You know what I'm saying? It's like things of a mom in my head. I'm like, you wouldn't have done that. Or if you, they clearly didn't have the baby with them. It's the only kind of things that have been sticking.
0: I hadn't really thought about the next morning too, but that's a good point. I was just thinking of, you know, like I said, her response for that night that, you know, I went and locked myself in the bedroom. I would expect to hear, yeah. I grabbed the baby and, and we went into the bedroom didn't hear that. Leonard says he doesn't remember the baby ever being there. And then you make a really good point about the next morning. You know, my children certainly didn't let me sleep past seven o'clock when they were one year old.
1: Or not even through the night (laughs) half the time at that point. I mean, that's why he comes in late at night, but she's in bed and pretends like she's still asleep, but looks at the clock. But where is this baby? In my head, I just keep going, where is the baby? So, okay, unknown, but just, points of interest for me that seem to be unsolved i i don't know that it really matters but i think to the actual murder but i think it goes to show where where were these people in their lives why why was she moving back in with them if she didn't have their child with them if that was the whole reason they were together
0: yeah i i agree and you know, you know in the conversation that never came up either you know when they talked about when angela talked about moving back in she said she was staying with leonard's friend bobby He didn't like that. He didn't like him helping her out. So he asked her to come back. She said he has to get rid of Elnora. He had to make a choice. He did. But no mention of the baby. And and I think that it does make a difference. You know, we don't know if either of them had anything to do with this crime. But if we're working on a hypothesis that maybe they did, I think it makes a significant difference to know whether or not that baby was at home. Say for example, it's complete speculation and just a hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Let's say Angela went over there and and killed Margie. Well, did she put the baby in the car seat and leave him waiting out in the driveway, or the baby at home, yeah, exactly. or was there no baby? I mean, it, it, we don't know.
1: Yeah, those are all my thought processes. But I thought instead of going fast forward into even the night of the murder, I, as far as she's concerned and having her involved in it, it's like I. The my basis question is where where is this baby? Where it's like right. the child exists. Leonard acknowledges that he has a son, and but he never says anything about I didn't want her with this other guy raising my child.
0: Right. Another thing or that didn't come with,
1: up. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all these things. I don't know. Maybe that's not something that anybody ever asked because it didn't seem to be germane or specific to the actual murder. So anyways, but thank you. I don't, thank you for taking my call. I do appreciate it. I'm so glad I got in and I was home having coffee still this morning.
0: Thank you for calling in.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. And I just call you fireman Bob. That works for
0: me. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. I'm on the line with Kristen from Tennessee. How are you doing today, Kristen?
4: Great, Bob. How are you?
0: Doing really well. So Mike tells me that you have a question about the phone call from Kubia.
4: Yeah, I know it probably doesn't really fit in with what you're talking, excuse me, with what you're talking about today, but like you, I'm sure it just keeps bugging me that in the phone call that Elnora said she was sitting there talking to Ed, and it's the only evidence, really, that he was there. So I was thinking about this. If I was in danger, and a friend called me, and I was trying to explain to my friend that I was in danger without saying it out loud, I might... Say something like that, hoping that she would think it was odd. And maybe like, I wondered if she was hoping that Kubia would call Margie and say, I just had this weird phone call with Elnora. And she said, Ed's over there. Do you know what's going on? Right. Like maybe by the tone of my voice that she would understand that something wasn't right.
0: I think that's a possibility. I've had actually a few other people have come up with a lot of theories, and that's one of them, that she was okay. tr- trying to alert Kubia that something was wrong. Yeah. I I just, I don't know. I, to be honest, I don't think that's necessarily what was going on, only because Kubia says that she didn't notice anything off in her voice. She just thought it was okay. odd that she was there with Ed. Unfortunately, there's just no way for us to know that. I lean more towards she had somebody there that she didn't want Kubia to know was there now, but that's just right. that's just my theory um and that's just based on a lot of uh, other female listeners who have written in and called in and because Kubia knew that she and Leonard had broken up and Kubia's belief was that it was because Leonard was cheating on her with Angela so right. I thought, you know, what if Leonard was there and she didn't want Kubia to know it was Leonard she was hearing in the background because she didn't want to you know, be judged by her friend or whatever. So I think that's a possibility. Or say it was Francis Johnson, who was known by everybody in the community there as a crack addict. And maybe she didn't want Kubia right. to know that it was <laughs> Francis there. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, and really, all we can do is is kind of hypothesize about it.
4: Do we know for sure that Kubia heard a voice in the background?
0: We don't. Like,
4: did she have to say it was a male that was there with her? Because if it was me and I wasn't saying that I was scared, I would say I was talking to Margie. Yeah. And you know what I'm saying? Why pick Edward?
0: Yeah, and I and I don't even know if Kubia heard some. The whole conversation is just weird. But, you know, you have to remember, as far as Kubia's memory of the phone call, it was a completely innocuous conversation. It was a normal routine for her to call her in the evenings. And she calls her and just says, hey, what are you doing? Elnora says, oh, I'm just sitting here talking to Edward Lewis, you know, Mrs. Dew's grandson. Okay, well, I'll talk to you later. So I don't know if she remembered what she heard. When I talked to her a couple of months ago, she didn't really remember. She remembered Elnora telling her, that she was sitting there talking to Edward, and she remembered thinking that that was odd because that just seemed like a strange right. thing for her to be talking to Edward.
4: Well, and I also wondered because of that, too, and she, she said it was it was strange, and in the transcript when she testified, she also said the prosecutor asked if she ever called back, and she said no, and he said, was that unusual, and she said yes, and I thought, did anyone ever ask her if she tried to call back? You know, if I was if my friend didn't call back, I would try to call her back. And if I didn't get her, I might become concerned. And then maybe I would call Margie because she's right there and say, hey, is Elnora OK? I can't get a hold of her. That whole phone call seems strange, really strange to me.
0: Yeah, I, I think that when you when you look at the big picture of it, as far as Kubia is concerned, it seems about normal. I remember this is this is late at night. We're talking, you know, I think it was nine thirty, ten o'clock at night. Um, right. she says she's talking to edward she'll call her back kubia says she just you know went to bed and the phone never rang again she never got another phone call and then the next morning they both worked at the same place in different buildings and kubia just thought she thought it was weird she didn't call back last night and thought it was weird that she was talking to ed so she called her work and or over to her office and that's when she found out that she wasn't there then she tried to call her house and got no answer Then she called Johnny, who was right next door, to tell her, hey, I talked to her last night, said she was going to call back. She didn't, and she's not at work today. She's not answering her phone. Do you know where she is? And then as that ties in with Johnny, Johnny says that she was sleeping because she worked nights, and uh, Kubi had left voicemails for her. And it wasn't until later in the evening when she woke up that she heard the voicemails and then started looking for Elnora. So it kind of, to me, it, to me, it all tracks from Kubia's standpoint and Johnny's standpoint. It tracks like normal. I mean, you may be wondering why she didn't call back, but I don't I don't think it would keep somebody up at night. I think they're tired. They just go to bed. But, you know, she gets up the next morning and then she starts to think, well, that was odd. Why didn't she call back?
4: Right. In hindsight, that's odd. Yeah, I understand that. And if if it's OK, I have one comment about Angela. Sure. Is that OK? Just thinking about. The you know the victimology. I was been thinking about what Laura Richards might come up with as far as a profile. And unless Angela worked in conjunction with Leonard to kill El Nora, it's hard for me to imagine that Angela was the sole killer because I don't think Angela would have placed that pillow under El Nora's head.
0: Yeah, I I would agree with that. I and I mean there's a lot of things. I don't think that El Nora would have been nude. I don't think there would have been semen on the stain. Right. I don't think the toilet seat would have been left up.
4: Right. Well, I mean, obviously a man had been there. So either a man was still present or a man had just left if, you know, a female is the killer.
0: Yeah, I I think if we're looking at a possible theory where Angela was involved, in my mind, it almost would have to be two people there, a man and her, in, in order for that to happen. I'm not saying that is what happened, but I think if Angela were involved, I think that there would be two people involved.
4: Right. And I think the, the right and left hand thing, I feel like that's throwing me off because I, I'm not sure that maybe that's not quite as important as I thought it
3: was.
0: Yeah, I, and we don't know. Yeah, you know, That's one thing that Jim Clemente said right from the beginning when I did the initial crime scene analysis and profile. Jim said that, yeah, the cut clearly looks like she was cut with the left hand from behind but you can't yeah. necessarily say that means the person is left-handed it just depends on the situation they could have they were right-handed grabbed her with their right arm and were restraining her with their strong hand and then cut her throat with her left somebody could be ambidextrous or somebody could be strong enough in either hand to do it either way it it doesn't necessarily mean the killer was absolutely left-handed it just means that the killer right. used their left hand to make the cut
4: yeah i just i think i see a lot of comments and questions on social media about asking about everybody's dominant hand. And I think that if that's the only thing we're looking at, that that may lead us in the wrong direction. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure that that's as important as we think it might be.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And you have to take everything in as a whole. It's just like, right, a profile may say you're looking for this type of person. But even profilers, you know, Jim and Laura themselves say this, they're just looking at most probable scenarios. So that doesn't mean that there was absolutely somebody that fits that profile. That's just based on their experience they believe is the most likely candidate for a suspect. So it it's just another tool in the toolbox and when you find the right person everything should fit. Every piece of evidence fits this one person. You can't have something that throws you, you know, that, that completely throws your theory out and just ignore it. Everything has to fit.
4: Unless you're the Smith County VA
0: Right, unless you're the Smith County DA, and then uh, <laughs> they'll make it fit.
4: Then you only need one piece of evidence.
0: Exactly. <laughs> All right, Kristen. Well, hey, thanks for calling in. Those are some great questions, and hopefully it generates some thought with everybody listening. I appreciate it.
4: Uh, thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Uh-huh. Bye-bye.
0: All right, I've got Liz from Kentucky on the line. How are you doing today, Liz? I'm
2: doing great. How are you, Bob?
0: Doing really, really well. All right, so Mike says you have some questions about victimology.
2: Yeah, my question for you is when you started this whole um, investigation, you kind of did a rundown of Elnora and all the things that you knew about her in terms of what might make her a high risk in certain areas of her life or low risk based on her, her as a victim. And so I wondered if I know that you're going to have Laura Richards go into more detail in terms of a, a more of an unbiased thing since she doesn't know about the case as much. But have you thought about going back and re-looking at that in terms of now knowing that she had possible involvement with individuals involved with drugs? Um, also, that she had multiple different relationships, it seems like, that might have overlapped somewhat and how that might have increased her risk.
0: Yeah, definitely. What I sent to Laura, the way she works a profile, is I sent her a background on El Nora as far as what was going on in her life prior to the murder. And so that way, Laura can develop victimology from there. And I told her that Margie had told me about this whole drug cartel thing. And, you know, I gave her the background of no one seems to know why she moved from Dallas to Tyler. And it has always seemed really odd to me, and I've always thought... What are they hiding? Why isn't? Why won't anyone tell me why she moved there? I just find it very, very hard to believe that she would pack up and move. in with, with her cousin, that they were so close and is staying on her property and her trailer. And Johnny never asked, why are you leaving Dallas with no job and no money and all these things? But I don't have any proof of that yet. And that's one of the things that I'm working on right now is trying to figure out if that statement from Margie is legitimate. If it is, it most definitely changes our victimology because outside of that, if we're we're not considering that, Elnora is extremely low risk. I mean, she lives out by herself. She's got family and friends right close by. She goes to church. She goes to work, has just a few relationships with people. She hadn't lived there that long. The only real risk factor is the relationship status, and that's one thing that we look at. Same thing when I would be investigating an arson. When you're trying to determine cause, it's not called victimology, but one of the things we're looking for is what has changed recently. You know what changed in your routine. For example, I had a fire uh, that was just baffling. It turned out it's a long story, but it turned out to be spontaneous combustion of some oily rags that caused a fire, which is a freak occurrence for the fire service to be to have a fire start that way. It's not something that happens every day, but the way we figured it out was by having the victim, the people who own the property, retrace their steps and look for what did you do different that day. And in this particular case, every night she would take the rags from the kitchen, wash them, dry them, put them on the top of the stairs for the person that came in the morning to fold and put away. That particular night they had to leave early. She pulled them out of the dryer before the cycle was over. So they were still damp and they were still hot. They hadn't gone through the cool down. So it was that thing that changed. That triggered the fire. And and it's the same type of thing when we're looking at a case like this as victimology. So Elnora lived in that trailer in Tyler for several months and had no problems whatsoever. She was dating Leonard. We don't know what was going on with Francis Johnson or Lionel Williams. But all of a sudden, two weeks before the murder occurs, her and Leonard break up because right. Leonard and Angela get back together. Angela moves back in. They're supposedly broke up, but she's still calling his house, and then he's still coming over on that Thursday night when he's supposed to be with Angela. That creates an obvious risk factor there, and it's a change in behavior. So all signs would point to this is a good indication that this may have something to do with this murder. But then when Margie told me about this drug cartel thing, that throws a monkey wrench in the whole thing because it does change those risk factors. It changes the victimology.
2: They were looking for her or finally found her and Tyler or something to that effect, you
0: know? Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, we don't have any real way yet to this point anyway to confirm if that's the case. If we knew that for a fact, that opens up a whole other line of investigation. But right now we just have one person who, to be honest, is suffering from Alzheimer's and has memory issues and is clearly always trying to tell me whatever she can tell me to try and help her son. So I kind of have to take okay, a lot of what okay. she tells me with a grain of salt. So that's where I think Laura's profile will help. So she'll have that victimology and she'll know here's a possible risk factor, but we're not sure. And we'll see how that fits with the actual crime scene, the profile of the crime scene. You know, If, if she comes up with this was absolutely looks to me like it was someone with a close, personal, intimate relationship with her. Well, then that, that other risk factor probably doesn't play in too much, but you know, if she tells us, this looks like someone who's just angry at her and doesn't have any kind of personal connection to her. Well, now all of a sudden, right. that piece of, of the victimology is going to play a big role, I think.
2: Yeah, and, and I totally get what you're saying in terms of like it's kind of speculative at this point. Could there be some other factors that we don't know about, you know, the 20 years where before this all happened and anything prior to this that could give us any information about
0: it? Yeah, and I would love to know. This has just been a weird case because I can't seem to track down her kids. She had two adult children at the time. I've searched high and low. I found phone numbers that I thought were theirs that turned out not to be theirs, email addresses that turned out not to be theirs. I've talked to Johnny and Kubia and Leon, who is Johnny's brother, her other cousin, and no one seems to be able to tell me anything other than Leon told me that prior to moving to Tyler, she was living with him because prior to that, She was living in a house that was owned by the church. She took care of it while the missionaries were out. But when the missionaries came back, she had to get out. And so she was living with Leon. But I know she's got two kids. I know she was divorced. And that's all I know. And nobody's talking. And she's just a big mystery. And I can't figure out her kids either. Because the Smith County DA tells me that they contacted her family. And her family said they don't want them to release the crime scene photos to me. So they're claiming they have contact information from them. And they made a big deal to me saying that her family was adamant. They were pissed off because I was doing what I was doing. And it just seems to me like if that was the case, if they were contacted by the DA's office, they know this podcast is happening. My contact information is all over the place. It's it's easy to get a hold of me. I would have expected, if that was the case, for me to get an email from them or something saying, "Hey, knock it off! We don't appreciate what you're doing." But I have heard nothing from them, and I have not, and I and I've said on the podcast many times that I'm trying to track them down. I had Johnny trying to track down phone numbers for me, and I just I can't get a hold of them. But so yeah, we have this big mystery in her previous life prior to moving to Tyler.
2: Yeah, and I mean, similar to Real Crime Profile, I mean, their mission is really to talk about victims and really right. make sure yeah. that justice is in, done for, done for them. And so I would hope that her kids would if they thought that there was somebody out there that really had committed this crime against their mother, they would want that done. But yeah. So, well, great work, Bob. That that was all I kind of had just some thoughts about that victimology and going back and looking at that. But it's it, like you said, it's hard when you don't know a whole chunk of her life and, and those that information.
0: Well, thank you so much for calling Liz. Great conversation.
2: Thanks. Bye.
0: Bye. All right. This is gonna be our last call of the day. I have Dustin from Virginia on the line. How are you doing today, Dustin?
3: I'm doing all right. What about yourself?
0: Doing really well. What's up, Dustin?
3: All right. So uh, I've been listening to a large amount of the uh, social reform podcast. So in the undisclosed, there is the idea that possibly there's been pushback from the local uh, police department against some possible uh, interviewees. And I was curious in this case, it doesn't seem like you've had much pushback from the Smith County office as of anything but the bureaucratic side. Is there any chance that you think that the Smith County DA office actually wound up contacting Angela Walker after your first interview?
0: That would make, make for an incredible story. But to be honest with you, I don't think so. I mean, I think that the Smith County DA's office clearly is not a fan of me and they're, they're doing what they can do to trip me up. Right now, but I don't think Matt Bingham is that bad of a guy that he would be going out of his way to because think of the risk. First of all, he would be taking if he calls somebody and tries to dissuade them from talking to me or to Allison or anybody. He doesn't know how that person's going to react. They might tell him to shove it up his ass and and go public with the fact that he's doing it. It's it's a big risk in. And to be honest, as much as, as Bingham has done a lot of things that are pissing me off right now, I think a lot of it is just more bolstering and just trying to, you know, doesn't like me and he's trying to be a pain in the ass. I, I don't think that he is that corrupt, that he would go that far with it. And I think that, that the more likely scenario with Angela shutting down is, I think that there's a chance that she called Leonard that night. Uh, And I say that because when I first contacted her and I told her I'm doing a story on this case, her immediate reaction is, what are you talking about? That was years and years and years ago. Why are you talking about that now? It seemed to me that she was shocked that I was calling her. She was shocked I was talking about the case. She hadn't thought about it in a long time or was just surprised to be hearing about it. Uh, so I, I definitely don't think she had been prompted prior to that by the DA's office, and it would just be a hell of a coincidence if they happened to call her, you know, that. And that conversation ended at 11 o'clock at night, and then it was 9 o'clock the next morning when I messaged her back. So she couldn't have called the DA's office during that time. And again, I just think that that's a little bit too, even for me, that's a little too tinfoil hatty. <laughs> but she did ask me towards the end of the conversation, she asked me, have you talked to Leonard? And I told her, yes, I talked to him, like, because at the time the conversation was going, she was giving me all this information about why Margie did it. And so I was kind of playing along with her and being like, yeah, I think she's a good suspect. i just trying to make her comfortable and get her to tell me more. Uh, and then she said, did you talk to Leonard? And I said, yeah, I talked to him last week, actually. And he told me actually the same thing. He said that, you know, he thinks that it's Margie. And that that was, you know, shortly thereafter was when we ended the conversation and then the next morning, she was just, like, on lockdown. It was almost like when uh, when somebody's told, just plead the fifth, don't say anything. Because no matter what I said, I just kept getting the same response. It's in the report. It's in the report. It's in the report. The thing that makes the most sense to me, and I could be wrong, is that I think she probably called Leonard that night and said, hey, this guy contacted me, and Leonard told her to shut down.
3: Right. I, I was just thinking that it seems, well, while that's completely understandable there, but it seems that uh, while Matt Bingham might have a lot to lose, there might be other former members of the DA's office that would have a lot to gain if they were able to kind of stop people from talking to you in, in the near future. It just seems that you've had pretty free and clear access.
0: Yeah, th- that's true. It, and again, I think certainly that's that's a possibility. But I, I honestly don't think it's likely uh, only because everybody's been willing to talk to me. You know what I mean? When I went to talk to Leonard, he was willing to talk to me. When I talked to Angela, she was willing to talk to me. You know, I, I think that if the DA's officer, like a former DA, had contacted them and was trying to convince them or dissuade them from talking to me, that that I would have got a different reaction from them. I, I think they're probably a little concerned about the case, but I just don't think they're gonna go that far with it. I think Bingham has shown signs of making an honest attempt at trying to right some of these wrongs you you saw that with Kerry cook's case where he agreed to throw the conviction Mm -hmm. out but he also seems like he's got an ego on him you know with cook's case he agrees to throw the conviction out then cook goes and starts blasting him and the innocence project on social media then they go in and they oppose his actual innocence you know in in our case he's been supposedly willing to work with allison from the innocence project but for me as soon as i've been pretty hard on them on the podcast they're doing anything they can do to trip us you know i the fact that i've had an open records request in for over 7 months and that you know the conclusion of it is a $1300 bill i think that is more him just being a dick you know what i mean than, right. than it's him really trying to obstruct the case i wonder how much legitimacy they give us as the, us being the the truth and justice army and what we're doing being that you know they're we're outside of the criminal justice system we're just normal people that are working on this I don't know if they give us that much credit that they think they need to right. do anything like that. If that makes sense, it does.
3: All right. Well, thank you uh, for taking my call.
0: Thanks for calling in, Dustin. It was great talking to you.
3: All right. You as well. Bye. Bye. All
0: right. We're going to take a quick break here to hear about today's sponsor, and then we're going to get into some Facebook, Twitter, and email questions. Okay, for the second segment of today's show, Mike is going to read me some questions from email and Twitter and Facebook. So let's go ahead and get started with that. Okay, Chief, this one's from Nicole on Twitter. She says, would it be possible to look for the knife on the property? I assume that Nicole is talking about the knife that Margie talked about when we were having the interview with her. Right. So that is one thing that I've considered is on my next trip to Texas to hook up with Margie and maybe go with a metal detector and everything else, but Margie has told me in previous conversations that this was a huge piece of property. Like literally a back 40 acres and there was a pond and there was a stream running through it, and she has no idea where Francis actually dumped those ashes. She just said that when she woke up the next day and she went outside, the ashes were gone. He had loaded them up in the truck and taken them away. Sure. So we have no idea where they could be, but it may be worth checking out. Maybe next time we'll go by, we'll rent a metal detector and go exploring. Okay, cool. So um,
5: the next question we have here comes from an email from Gemma Ridgeway in the UK. She asks, do you think Angela Walker could be the killer that Leonard knows was there? Could he have arrived at Elnora's as planned that night to find Angela there? This would support your previous theory about there being two people in the trailer with Elnora the night she was killed. Leonard would also be telling
0: you the truth that he didn't kill her but would still need to lie about certain things to protect himself? Thanks for that question, Gemma. It is a good question. It does require us, though, to really speculate and theorize about what's happening here, because there's no way that we can know this for sure. But could that be the case? I think it certainly could. I think that it would actually help explain some of the issues that we had in the crime scene, the strange things like the phone from the kitchen being in the bedroom and her being nude. I think that Angela walking in on Leonard and Elnora together is a plausible scenario for what we have in the crime scene. That doesn't necessarily mean that's what happened, but to answer your question, yes, I think that is absolutely a plausible theory for what we know at this point.
5: Oh, and that would give Leonard a reason to have to
0: lie to you even though he didn't kill her. Well, exactly, because that's what we're trying to figure out here is why, if Leonard didn't kill her, wouldn't he turn in the person who did if he knew about it and vice versa with Angela? Right. Right. And that makes a lot of sense if it was indeed Angelo walking in on Leonard and there was a struggle between all three of them. They might have both just been like, we need to cover this up and get out of here. And it's also a good scenario for both people involved to be protecting each other. No one wants to give the other one up because in doing so, they're going to incriminate themselves at this point. Right. Okay.
5: And our next question is a perfect follow-up to that one. It's an email from Dana in Texas. She says, If Angela and Leonard were in it together or covering up for each other, why would Angela have said at trial that Leonard got home at 1245 when he claimed to be home earlier? And why would she
0: say he left early in the morning? Okay, that is a good follow-up to this, and that's part of the reason why I'm so hesitant to be pointing any fingers at Leonard and or Angela. Because, yes, there's a lot of evidence that seems to fit with them, circumstantial evidence. But at the same time, there's a lot of things that are kind of exculpatory for them. Mm -hmm. You know, we know about Leonard's interview and him possibly seemingly not knowing the cause of death. Yeah. And then there's the fact that just like Dana says, if Leonard and Angela were in this together and they're kind of protecting each other, Angela kind of throws Leonard under the bus at trial. Mm hmm. She does very clearly contradict his alibi. He says he's home at 1210. She says 1245. And that same statement came in to the police right after the crime. Yeah. So if there's ever a time when it was like, we need to get our story straight, that sure as hell isn't the time, if they're in this together, to start mixing things up. So that's one of the things that leads me to believe that maybe they're not involved. At the same time, we don't know the level of intelligence of either one of these two people either. I mean, Leonard seemed like he was a pretty sharp guy, right, but I don't know Angela. you know, I only had Facebook messages with her. I've never heard her voice, I've never spoken with her. Mm-hmm. so she could just be confused or just not be very good at this, right? We just don't know so Dana, this is a great question, but unfortunately, at this point, that's one of the baffling things about this case is we just find all these different roadblocks, and this is one of them. We don't know the answers to a lot of these questions yet. Okay, now we've got a question about the crime scene from Jess Goldberg. It's an email.
5: I know the footprint found on Elnora's bedroom pillow on the floor isn't the greatest picture or imprint, but could this be used as evidence? Is there any way to determine shoe tread or shoe size from the print on the pillow? Could the similar information be ascertained from the smudges in the kitchen? This might better be able to help us narrow down the size of the
0: killer. Okay, this question again, and I know this is starting to sound like a broken record with this case, but we don't know these things, and we should. And that's the most frustrating part for me. We should be able to take that pillow and check the size of a shoe or the print on a shoe, but we can't because they didn't use any scales when they took the crime scene photos. Mm -hmm. They didn't document the size of it. They did send it to the lab for testing, but it was only to test the feces on there to see if it was human or not, along with the scraping from Ed's shoe. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't do a lot of things that they should have done. And it's the same thing with the footprint in the kitchen floor. Mm -hmm. We have no idea exactly how big that footprint is. It's really difficult. I had a lot of listeners try to filter that out so we can make a clear imprint out of that footprint. But given the background color so similar to the actual smudge, it's hard to make anything out. We really didn't get anywhere with it. Right. I mean, I can tell you from looking at it from all of the filtered photos that it definitely didn't come from Ed's shoe. Oh, it didn't match Ed's shoe at all? No, it's one of those things where we can't look at it and say exactly what the tread looks like, Mm -hmm. but we can try to make it fit with the tread that we have on the known footprint, which is his shoe, and there's just no way to make it fit in there. Sure. But what wasn't done and should have been done or could have been done is to try to pull that print off, and there's a lot of ways you can do that. You could spritz it with water and put paper over it or some sort of device to get a transfer and get just the feces print onto the paper mm-hmm. and have something to compare it against. They didn't do that. They didn't measure it. They didn't do anything with it. And it's the same thing with that print on that pillowcase. A lot of people have looked at it and told me, oh, they think it looks like this or think it looks like that. Right. But the thing is that that pillowcase was crinkled up, so the footprint is broken. So you would have to kind of fold it back together and almost piece it together like a puzzle. Yeah. Which could have been done, and if they had done that, then they could get a clear, I mean, that was a clear footprint. You Mm -hmm. could get a clear design of what the shoe print looked like, and again, that's one of the really frustrating parts, And, and I would assume they probably did try that, and it didn't match Ed's shoe. I mean, they had nothing on Ed. They were trying to find anything they could to pin him to that crime scene, and they had a footprint, and they had his shoe. I find it really hard to believe they didn't at least attempt to see if it matched his shoe. Unfortunately, they didn't document it or write it down anywhere, as far as I've seen. Hopefully, maybe some of that's in those files that we're going to be hopefully getting here later this week or next week. Yeah. But, yes, I guess the answer to your question, Jess, is we could have gotten that information from the smudge in the kitchen and the smudge on that pillowcase. Unfortunately, based on what was used at trial, as far as we know, they didn't make any attempt to do so.
5: All right. This next one's another email. It's from Mary. And Mary says, Hi, Bob. Page 48 of the Forensic Testing Report mentions a red polished chip found from Elnora's buttocks. If I'm reading that correctly, more evidence of scratches from a female, and then in parentheses she put
0: Angela. I don't know if this necessarily is more evidence of scratches from a female, but what Mary is referring to here is Angela's mention of the fingernail scratches on Elnora's body. Right, from your Facebook exchange. Exactly, and that could be the case, but what we're missing here is the fact that Angela shouldn't know anything about that fingernail scratch. Mm -hmm. Remember, Angela didn't really have much involvement with the investigation at all, right? and she was sequestered outside of the room during the whole trial, so she didn't hear any of that. The only thing Angela knows about the trial is when she was in there testifying, and presumably after her and Leonard spoke, maybe she knows about when Leonard was testifying. But Angela had moved away at this point. She didn't even live in Tyler. Mm -hmm. And the police certainly weren't sharing information with her about fingernail clippings that were found on the body, at least as far as I'm aware of. Sure. Now, we may find out differently when we get those documents and we find out how the actual interview went with Angela. But I would assume that they wouldn't have told her some of these minor little details unless they were trying to scare her. Like, we know it was a female because of this. But I didn't get the impression whatsoever that she was ever a suspect. I mean, Hal Leonard wasn't even really ever a suspect. Right. They questioned him once. They never checked him for scratches, never checked him for bruises, never looked at his shoes, never checked his clothes for blood, none of that. So I can't see them putting Angela in an interrogation room and really pushing her on these issues. And that's why the things she was saying about the fingernail scratches on the body were really so concerning to me. Because, yes, there were scratches on Elnora's body. It was never indicated there were fingernail scratches, but there's no way Angela should have known that. I mean, these issues weren't really discussed much in trial, at least not when Leonard or Angela were in the trial. It's not information the police should have been sharing with them. They really should have had no idea that there were even scratches on her body, much less fingernail scratches, and certainly not a chip of fingernail polish that was found on her buttocks. So this is, as we discussed earlier, there's some things that make them look very guilty. And some things that make them look more innocent. And this is in the guilty category for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's no way that Angela should have known about those scratches or that fingernail chip. So to me, that tells me she does know that there were fingernail scratches on Elnora's body, which could mean because she's the one that put them there. And maybe that's why she's trying to point the finger at Margie, another woman, and trying to create this whole love triangle between her and Leonard and Margie. Do you think Angela might have taken a look at your website and found information there? I don't think so, because when I talked to her, she didn't know who I was, was wondering why we're even talking about this old case. She was mm-hmm. clearly had no clue that we'd been working on the story. When I, either that or, again, she's an incredible liar, but she seemed to be completely caught off guard. I mean, this process started with me. I friend requested her, because on Facebook, if you send a message and you're not friends, they won't even see it. It goes into some other folder. Right. And I try this often, and most of the time people are like, well, I don't know this guy, so I'm not accepting it. Well, she accepted my friend request. Mm -hmm. So clearly she didn't see, oh, this is that guy that's reinvestigating the murder I committed. Yeah, I'll be friends with him and let him see all of my personal details on my Facebook page. I don't think that happened at all. So I don't think that she was looking through the documents on my website. Now, if she called Leonard that night, maybe he could have directed her to it and she could have went on the website and looked. But the conversation about the fingernail scratches on Elmore's body happened the night before, before she knew anything about me or what I was doing. All I told her was that I was a journalist working on a story. That's it.
5: Got it. So more on the Leonard and Angela angle, I've got a Facebook question from Holly. Okay. Holly writes... So Leonard's excuse for not going to Elnora's on Thursday was that he found out last minute that he had to work on Friday and didn't have work clothes. This shouldn't have made a difference because he also said that he showers at work and changes before leaving work. So wouldn't that mean that he has work clothes or a uniform in his locker at Tyler
0: Pipe? Always made me think that this was just another lame lie or excuse. I've always wondered about the clothes thing myself. I mean, there's a number of reasons why I think this seems like a lame lie or excuse. I mean, to begin with, Leonard lives what nine miles away from Elnora. Yeah. And doesn't go to work till eleven thirty the next morning. Why couldn't he still go there, eat dinner, even if he didn't spend the night? At least check in with her or have dinner with her. He knows she's cooking him a meal. But he says he doesn't go there because of the clothes, but he could have just he could have even spent the night. And then the next morning went home and got a change of clothes. So that's thing one. Thing two is he says it's because he didn't have another pair of work clothes. But if you look closely at Angela Walker's testimony, They ask her, what was Leonard wearing when he got home at 12.45 that night? And she says he was wearing his work clothes. She says a t-shirt and work pants. So that leads me to believe that he did have work clothes. Yeah. Maybe he had a different shirt that he didn't wear. But then I also wonder if he goes to work and then showers afterwards and puts on street clothes, do they have a uniform service where they just left their clothes there? And that's actually one of the leads that we're trying to track down right now is to figure out, did Tyler Pipe have a uniform service, which would make the whole point about not having work clothes completely irrelevant? So there's a lot of things with Leonard's excuse or lie or whatever it was about not going to Old Norse because of the work clothes situation that just doesn't make any sense at all. I think uh, we can officially stamp that as hinky.
5: Yeah, definitely. And lastly, we have an email here from Alex. Okay. Alex writes, Just a thought during the latest episode. You said that at trial, Dobbs said, I think during a bench conference, that Angela had claimed to have seen Ed on the night of the murder, and he wanted to do a polygraph. Although your interpretation that Angela did indeed say this is probably right, another possibility is that Dobbs was lying here. I'm not sure why. Perhaps playing for time? Just a thought.
0: Well, I've always thought that there were two possibilities as to what was actually going on with this bench conference. Either Angela was lying, and Dobbs caught her in her lie, or didn't believe her, or Dobbs was lying. And if Dobbs was lying, I think the purpose for that would have been to not allow Angela Walker to be called right after Leonard Mosley with testimony that was going to impeach him. Now, her testimony was going to come out eventually anyway, but remember, as a prosecutor, you're thinking a lot about the jury. The jury just heard Leonard Mosley say that he got home at 12.10. But Dobbs would have known that Angela was going to get up there and say that he didn't get home until 12.45 because that's what she said to the police. So as a prosecutor or a defense attorney or any attorney for that matter, you would certainly not want her to come in right after Leonard while it's still fresh in the jury's mind. So yes, it could possibly have been a stalling tactic on Dobbs' part, or it could have been that Angela's lying. Up until this point, we've had no way of knowing which of those two things it was. I think that since Angela has now cut me off, the only way that we're going to get any more information on this is to ask David Dobbs himself, which is exactly what we're going to do when I interview David Dobbs next week on Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Michael Bussing. I want to thank Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. I want to thank Sarah Mueller, Sarah Hoyt, and Desiree Dunn for transcribing all the episodes. Today's music selection was To the Top by Score Squad. I also want to thank today's sponsors for funding today's episode, Stamps.com and ABC's Conviction. And as always, I want to thank all of you for all of your support and also putting up with a bumpy couple of weeks here. I know some of you really love these call-in episodes and some people just prefer normal content. But with the scheduling issues that we've had this week and then finally getting in touch with David Dobbs and trying to schedule that interview, there was just too much going on to move on to a new topic this week. And everybody had a lot to say about both Margie and Angela. So hopefully you all enjoyed this listener call-in episode And keep your fingers crossed that all the scheduling works out and David Dobbs and I sit down and record that interview next week. I have spoken to him on the phone and exchanged several emails with him. And as of now, the plan is to record next week. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. As always, send in your new cases to cases at truthandjusticepod.com. Like the Facebook page or follow me on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.